Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to the latest episode of Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode is with John Giannakis, who's the president of the Americas of JLL Capital Markets. He leads JLL's capital markets platform across the U.S., Canada, and Latin America. In other words, John leads the investment, sales, and debt verticals within JLL, which worldwide is a 2,400-person team. John has a big job, and we had a fascinating discussion of his career path, but also got to dive deeply throughout the conversation on John's experience and thinking relating to leadership and pathways to success in the real estate transaction business. Our thanks to John, and in particular JLL, for being sponsors of Leading Voices. JLL clearly values leaders and its own leadership in the industry, and partners with us to bring you these interviews with people making a difference in all facets of real estate. You can find more information at jll.com slash voices. If you're enjoying the podcast series, I hope that you'll subscribe and please pass on to your friends in the business. If you have comments or suggestions, please go to our website at leadingvoicespodcast.com or feel free to email me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. Let's start at the beginning, um, which I, I like to do, and just kind of tell me where you grew up, how you grew up, a little bit of school, and then kind of how that wandered around and you got into banking and then re- real estate. Sure. Well, I was I was raised uh, in Ipswich, Mass., beautiful little seaside community north of Boston. Um, my mom and dad split up when I was very young, so I was actually raised by my dad's uh, immigrant uh, parents who came over in the early 1900s. My grandfather started two small uh, businesses, and uh, between my grandparents and my dad's younger sister, my aunt, who recently just passed away, um, they raised me. And I was very fortunate to have uh, that kind of love and, and profound, uh, I won't say structure, but I'll say ethnicity in the family because it was a it was a fascinating way to grow up. We spoke uh, Greek almost predominantly in the household. So while I can't read it or write it, I'm conversationally uh, fluent in Greek. And uh, it was a it was a fascinating way to grow up. Um, you know, as opposed mm. to maybe a more I just conventional got way back to go. from Greece, by the way, last week. And um, that most people speak Greek after the podcast is over. So, um, <laughs> so, but uh, you know, I was, uh, you know, uh, went to high school uh, locally at Ipswich High School, and um, really didn't know where I was going to go to college. I was an athlete, um, so lacrosse came calling, and I was fortunate that um, the University of Lowell, which is now University of Massachusetts at Lowell, the coach came to see me and seemed to be taken with whatever it was I was doing on the field. So I found my way to Lowell really through lacrosse. It wasn't uh, through any type of academic focus at all. And, uh, you know, I was I was very fortunate there that I made lifelong friends. And it was probably one of the early experiences that led me to feeling natural around leadership. I was co-captain of the lacrosse team and, uh, you know, bringing very disparate personalities together, um, getting younger fearful freshmen to be able to play with, you know, KG seniors that thought they had all the answers. And um, it was really a fascinating experience. I'd been captain of my high school basketball team also, but it was different. I wasn't quite as far along, I think maybe from a maturity perspective then as I, as I was in college, but you know, it, it led me down a path where I, I really enjoyed sort of being out in front, helping others. Um, even if I necessarily wasn't the best person on the field, um, getting the right people who did, need to be on the field for us to win, you know, to work together. And um, the commonality is almost comical between what I was doing then and what I'm doing now. Sounds like a total parallel. <laughs> it was. It was. So so then you started a career in banking. 
Yeah, so banking is funny, much like not knowing where I was going to go to college uh, until a coach showed up. Uh, it was a coach, actually, that got me into banking in a very weird sort of way. Um, I remember it was senior year, it was late. I had I had been interviewing, if you can imagine, with the old Woolworth, uh, Woolco, in their management training program. I would have gone to Manhattan and also um, CVS down in, in Rhode Island. They had a management training program, and neither of those retail stories you know, even though I came from a retail business, you know, my, my grandfather owned a grocery store and an ice cream parlor. I just didn't, I didn't have any passion for it. So it was late senior year, um, during lacrosse season. And my coach came up to me and he said, um, you don't have to practice today. Um, and I said, why? And he said, I want you to go down to meet, uh, the president of a local bank. And I said, well, why am I going to do that? And he said, well, they're looking for a management trainee. They're first. And they want somebody who is a very hard worker, can really talk a lot, and is absolutely not afraid of being told no. Mm -hmm. And he said, you're perfect for that. So I <laughs> went and put on my only suit that I had, my only pair of dress shoes, and went down to the Lowell Institution for Savings. And I met this old, you know, codger of a rough-and-tumble community banker. And we hit it off. And... uh they, I was on a 90-day probation. I think I don't remember what I was paid, but I remember I, when I finally got the full-time job after 90 days, I was paid the um, the incredible sum of $14,000 a year, and I thought that was more money than anybody on earth could possibly make. So, uh, banking and banking and finance in general was, as I say, you know, really an accident. But I'm so glad to Coach Conley for telling me to skip practice that day. <laughs> so, how long did you do banking, and then what transitioned you out of banking towards real estate? And did you do real estate banking pretty quickly? I, I did. I did. What well, was funny, I started out and my first job at Lowell Institution was to originate student loans. And, uh, you know, we're of a reasonably similar vintage. I remember, you know, you'd have the promissory notes and they'd have the four or five different um, carbons and you'd type in the terms and you'd make a mistake and you'd have to use whiteout on each of the different colored <laughs> uh, carbon copies. So I did okay on that for a while. And they said, um, we'd like you to come out on a couple of our uh, client meetings. And the first client meeting, I remember this vividly, Matt, we went out to Clinton, Massachusetts, which is a suburb in the far uh, western side outside of 495. And there was a developer by the name of Al Bafaro. And he was building an enormous condominium complex. Uh, and we were going to be doing the financing for it. And I remember seeing this gentleman. And he rolled out this big diagram uh, and the townhouses were going to be here and the clubhouse was going to be there. And I looked up over the plans, Matt, and all I saw was a vast sea of sand and tractor trailers moving dirt and gravel around. And I thought to myself, this person must be completely out of his mind. And so must my, my bosses because they're lending him the money to do it. Well, that vision that this man Bafaro had, it struck me. It was, he took nothing and he was going to create a place where people could live. So I was on cloud nine when I got back to the bank and I said, is there some way I can get into the construction loan department? And they chuckled and said, well, that was the reason why we took you on the tour, Einstein. <laughs> so um, I, moved, I moved into the construction loan uh, department and started making loans to small developers. I made loans to small uh, multifamily owners, um, ethnic families that owned businesses. Matt, you can imagine the vision of the businesses on the first floor and there's apartments above. And I started to open up savings accounts for these lovely families. Some of them were Greek. There were French families, Polish families. Um, and that's actually when I first got the passion to want to advise and help families, which led to the whole family office 
journey that I went on. But yeah, it was it was Al Bafaro and Clinton Mass in 1984 that uh, flicked that switch that said real estate seems like a pretty interesting thing to do with your life. It happens at a at a specific moment and it made it very real. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I think of it now and then. Uh, I think of Coach Conley now and then. It's, you know, these, and you you know this in the stories that you've told with your other podcasts, fascinating how one person just at that, that pivot point in a young person's life can guide you to what your life's work is. And it's, you never, you never understand the profoundness at the time that it happens. It just, you, you obviously realize it when the years have passed. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. So, how long were you at Lowell Savings, and then and then you formed the Tallard Group? Yeah. So, so a classic example of you know how weird things happen. So, uh, I really grew very very fast in the four or five years that I was at the bank, and um, a, a group of the bank's most wealthy clients called me and said, we'd love to grab you and, and go to dinner with you. I didn't know what it was about. And um, they said, you know, we'd like to start a family office combining our various families, and we'd like to buy real estate all across New England. Um, we've watched how you've you know, built the business. Um, we've watched you as a young person, how you conduct yourself. And we'd like to fund uh, a business called the Tallard Group. It was named after one of the gentlemen's uh, streets where he lived on. And we'd love you to do it. So I... Um, I went to the president and the chief loan officer of the bank, who are my bosses, and I said, um, may I do this? And they said, you know, we want you to stay, um, but this might actually be an interesting adventure for you. And our bank at the time was actually in the process of going public. Uh, and that was actually the first time that I got a chance to be uh, involved in a roadshow when the bank was beginning to go public. So uh, I left before the bank went public and started the Tallard Group. And it was a a fascinating experience for a young person, Matt. I mean, I traveled all over New England, you know, uh, bidding on apartment buildings, retail centers, office buildings. And for the grace of God, we had the discipline to not buy one thing because it was 1988 and 89. And as you can imagine, um, that was absolutely the beginning of a free fall in Boston area real estate. And uh, for the grace of, of luck and a little bit of God, um, they came to me about a year in and said, you know, you've protected us from making a myriad of mistakes, but we think it's time that we disband the talent group. Um, so we'd like to give you a little bit of time to find your next journey. But, you know, we're going we're gonna to basically, um, you know, wrap the company up. So I went home and I, Patty and I were high school sweethearts. We just celebrated 31 years together. And I said, you know, I, I really want to stay uh, in an entrepreneurial, self-employed career path. And just like she does today, Matt, she looked at me very balanced and she said, dear, there's a vast difference between being self-employed and unemployed, and you are now thoroughly residing in the latter camp. So, so I said, well, you know, I grudging, I didn't want to do, I didn't want to go back to work for a big company. So um, this kind of gets into the whole, you know, how did you get to, uh, how did you leave Lowell to, to end up at Copley? And... Um, you know, the story sort of flows through where my father-in-law um, was very friendly with the senior uh, tax accountant at the New England Mutual Life Insurance Company. And that gentleman, um, part of the New England, as you may recall, they owned the majority of Copley Real Estate. So I put my resume together very grudgingly. And this wonderful gentleman sent the resume over to Dan Coughlin, who was at the time the head of portfolio and asset management for Copley. And I'd never thought anything would come of it. But lo and behold, I got a call 
And I think it was 15 interviews later, Matt, uh, they offered me an opportunity to be the portfolio manager for uh, this very large grouping of foreclosed office buildings and apartment projects throughout Texas. And I remember they, they figured um, if, if we could find a guy who started a company when he was 26 with wealthy guys who managed to make loans to some of the most difficult developers in the Merrimack Valley, um, you know, who was willing to make student loans um, and fill out accounting of uh, loan payments on ledger cards and be proud of it, I think he probably would be very comfortable fighting with Texas developers over failed joint ventures and filling you know, vacant office buildings in Houston. And they were good judges of character. <laughs> Because I was, so that's how I ended up at Copley. And, and let's let's pause for a minute and go to a couple of points here. So first of all, you're twenty seven, twenty eight, twenty nine at this point. Yeah, to me, still a kid. And, no, definitely. And I'm thinking about Copley, which is one of the storied names in commercial real estate investment management, specifically to be the kind yeah. of the first joint venture partner, right? The preferred joint yeah. venture partner yeah. for anybody. But That's times right. are starting to go bad. Well, you know what's funny was one of the one of the things, and I think Marianne actually said this in her podcast. I sat in these rooms, Matt, with these Harvard-educated or Middlebury or Bowdoin uh, or Williams kids or kids from Stanford or wherever, Berkeley. And here's this kid without an MBA from Lowell, Mass. I mean, you know, you know, UMass Lowell. Who cared? And I was terrified because I really, really felt like I didn't belong. Mm -hmm. And I remember each time that we'd solve a problem or we'd lease a building or we would um, negotiate a, a give back to the lender, which was good for Copley at the time, whatever the circumstances were, I remember just that little teeny increment of self-confidence eked into me just a little bit more in my body of work of it didn't really matter where you went to school. Do you right. belong in the room? Do you do the work? Do you work harder than everybody around you? Things that all of us through our various careers, you know, you had to learn it by proving to yourself that you could do it. And Copley was, it absolutely was the turning point in my whole career because who knows, I might've ended up, you know, uh, a senior officer of a, of a bank in the North Shore of Boston, and that would have been fine, but I never would have gone on the journey that I find myself on now. It just never would have happened because that whole world, it opened up to me at that point. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because you're in the middle of the big institution. Yes. Yeah. It, with one of its massive problems and... You know, nobody else wanted the job, Matt. That's the, that's the the classic lesson for young people is when somebody says this is a really difficult job, um, you might fail at it. Um, I always tell people um, you must take the tough job because that's where the upside is. And all the better if people that on paper who look like they were vastly more qualified than you said no to it, all the better to take it because you'll learn something from it, irrespective of the outcome. And if you succeed, it's a triple. Yep, absolutely true. So then you're working with Copley and you're focused on the troubled Texas assets, which <laughs> was such a big part of the economy and the real estate story back then. <laughs> yes. What what came next? It, and how long did you stay there? But then what came next as that crisis, as we exited the crisis? So the the interesting thing about it, much like that the storyline of taking the difficult job, I stayed at Copley for seven years, but um, after we resolved the Texas portfolio and stabilized it, um, I and a couple of the, the other guys ended up being part of a sales 
team where we sold assets to create liquidity, truthfully to pay off. Um, if you remember, Copley became very levered on land in California. And we ended up taking assets from all over the United States and selling them to create liquidity to pay down the lines. So we successfully did that. And then yet again, it seemed like I was always getting the movie prize. They came to me and said, um, we'd like you to be the portfolio manager for a separate account. And I said, well, that sounds exciting. I was thinking about Peter Lynch at the, you know, the Magellan Fund at the time. What do I know what that meant? <laughs> and, lo and lo and behold, um, we had a failed um, or a failing separate account with the Ohio State Teachers Retirement System. Uh, it was affectionately referred to as separate account O at the time. And it was about a $350 million separate account. Um, we had had very poor returns. And they said, you know, we'd like you to take it over. And yet again, uh, eyes wide closed, I jumped into it. And I remember going to Columbus and meeting with the senior uh, folks from the client and saying, you know, I, I promise you that I won't be the smartest portfolio manager you'd ever have. But I will tell you without any doubt whatsoever, I don't work for Copley. I work for you. And I remember there were senior Copley people there at the time. And I thought, well, that's a career ending statement. But I didn't mean it. And lo and behold, uh, we ended up within a few years negotiating a, a settlement of the separate account where we sold assets back to Ohio State teachers. And if you remember, Matt, there was a very large lawsuit at the time involving the state of Washington and the state of Ohio involving our Prentice Copley Investment Group. And we actually settled the lawsuit in its entirety. Um, and it was in part by the things that I did with the state of Ohio. So again, it was a job that no one wanted. Um, and it ended up changing the direction of the organization. I learned so much. Um, and the state of Ohio did really well. Uh, and it was a really good outcome for the new, a good outcome for the New England and Copley. So again, these, these things that you take, these jobs that appear unattractive prima facie, you know, they can change the trajectory of your life and, and an organization. Absolutely. And, and it's interesting. I, I just wrote down the word, the essence, because what you said to them in that meeting is, I don't work for Copley, I work for you, is such an interesting comment. It, we all do that. We're all in the service business. I clearly am as well. But even if you're a principal, you're working for your investors all the time. Oh, 100%. I, I remember my uh, the general counsel for, for Copley was a fascinating and wonderfully intelligent attorney. And he said to me, uh, irrespective of where you go in your career or how far you rise in an organization, even to the point where you may be the president or the CEO, you will always have people that you are responsible for and people that you must answer to. And I never forgot it. He talked about truth. It was, it was dead on. Yeah, totally true. So let's segue from this. What got you out of Copley and into the agency business and maybe to New York? I think there's two transitions around the same time. Yeah, it's you'll you'll find a common theme here of just I, how could that possibly have happened as sort of the backdrop. So if you recall, um, AEW and Copley merged and formed AEW Capital Management. And uh, I get my years right. I want to say that that was in the latter part of 96. Mm -hmm. My math, math is right. And I had asked to um, be considered for a variety of jobs um, in acquisitions, in uh, capital markets, in client relations, but all the seats were taken. So they said, you were a fabulous portfolio manager. We would love you to take over. 
a portfolio of foreclosures that MetLife has, because you remember MetLife was involved mm-hmm. in the transaction. And it felt very much like that Texas job, except seven years removed. So uh, at the same time, as that was happening, that my, my mom was diagnosed um, with cancer and very severe cancer. So um, as I was preparing to go up to New Hampshire where her surgery was going to take place, I wrote down on a legal pad, dating myself a legal pad, every person I could think of that potentially could find me a way to New York. And the reason for New York was... Boston was a small town. I was a state-educated educa- um, person. I really didn't have any political ties or anything that could put me in a position to really be competitive in some of the other firms within Boston. So um, I put together a list of maybe 150 names, if my memory serves me. And while my mom was in surgery, I literally, at a payphone in the lobby, called every single person on that legal pad. And the whole goal was, I said, I want to get to New York. I don't even know what I'm saying, but I think that's the place where I could start my career in a new direction. Can you help me? And three of the people of that 140, 150 said, yes, I can. And they led me to the three interviews that I had in 1997. Um, and one of those was with Secured Capital. That was the precursor, as you know, to Eastall Secured. Um, and that's how I started in brokerage. It was the combination of my mom's illness, a, a profound fork in the road of my life, um, which was in large part caused because AEW was acquiring Copley and you know my career seemed like it was going to be limited. So um, I was very, very afraid Let's go back for a second and we'll come back to I'm very, very afraid. Did you have a sense then or now that credentials matter more in Boston than they do in New York? You know, at the time, yes. At the time, I was convinced that all that I did not have was that was that was self-determining. I could have been wrong. But I look back now on the 21 years since I made that choice. And I do not believe that the experiences that I've had and where I sit today probably would have happened if I had stayed. Could it could have happened? Who's to say? Um, but uh, I definitely looked at what I didn't possess, Matt, as a determinant of what the outcome would be, right or wrong. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, also, sometimes a discontinuous change, in this case, a move and a move from one part of the industry to the other allows you to open yourself up to maybe where it needs to go. Right. That's true. Shock to the system. So you said you were very, very <laughs> scared and you started in brokerage. Those were two words at the same sentence. Yeah. So the, I remember getting there and being so excited, but then realizing that all of the power that you have when you're on the capital side, especially Copley's reputation at the time, goes away and everything comes down to your ability to create value. Uh, it had nothing to do with your ability to bring capital to a situation. Everything was based on um, intellect, aggressiveness, creativity. And the reason I used the the word afraid was I remember uh, my daughter had just been born. So I, both of the kids were very young. Abby was, she wasn't even two weeks old when I left to take an apartment in New York uh, during the week and then fly back to Boston on the weekends because the family didn't join me for a year. Uh, and my son Alex was four at the time. And I remember being in the office two, three, four o'clock in the morning and just being terrified that there was no net. 
my wife, uh, Patty, had given up her job as an advisor and a consultant at KPMG, and it had to work, Matt. It mm-hmm. had to work. Mm-hmm. And then I would find myself kind of chuckling and saying, my grandfather came over from Greece with his brothers and started businesses, not even barely being able to speak the language, fed, clothed, and housed nearly 20 people in the house that I grew up in. How dare I be afraid? Mm-hmm. And that's what sort of emboldened me to, you know, square my shoulders and dig right back in. So, um, you know, life lessons from the people that come before you, you know, they direct your life if you listen. Absolutely. And let's pull another quote out because you said there was no net. It had to work. And I think as you bring people into the brokerage business, that's one of the issues you have to overcome or conversations you have to have because it's very different than I sit in a chair and I'm selling properties for an institution or I'm buying properties for an institution. No doubt about it. But And, you know, I think that, but this whole thesis of there's no net and anybody that you ever speak to, whether they're, you know, in the commissioned intermediary side or they're on the principal side, you know, there's no net if you don't succeed, right? I mean, it's it, you really don't have the luxury of being mediocre in the business. Um, I don't know if you have that in any business, candidly, but certainly in our business, the you know the severity of of coming to the conclusion is much clearer. <laughs> uh, yes, no luxury to be mediocre. Uh, although this is not Lake Wobegon, where everyone's better than average, <laughs> even in our industry, right? Because once you yeah. then raise the bar to everyone being pretty good or damn good, then there's still people who are super strong and people who are just so, so strong. Very true. Very true. Hence, hence where the outcome of market share comes from, right? That's exactly. Good. Well, we'll get there in, in, in a little bit. Okay. So walk us through the first roles that you had in the brokerage world, and then we'll eventually get to how you joined JLL. Sure. So, you know, I, I started out uh, really as an execution vice president at Secured Capital, uh, helping the senior guys pitch the business, being responsible for, you know, the due diligence, execution, support. Um, and uh, slowly, uh, I got to take a little bit more of an out front role on some smaller deals. Um, and that was exciting because it gave me visibility to the client. You were the, you were the go-to person, even if it was a 30, 40, $50 million deals, as opposed to some of the really big stuff that we worked on. Um, and that was exciting. So, you know, as I moved through, um, Transwestern, I started to take on a much more, uh, partnership level role, uh, doing more advisory work, um, on behalf of institutions was involved in a really interesting, uh, opportunity to roll up a series of uh, developers across Mexico who were uh, had created large industrial uh, distribution facilities around the Maquiladoras. So Transwestern was exciting because it was an entrepreneurial culture and it allowed me to really get more out in front to be the deal lead person. So when, when the Transwestern, I actually, uh, with Transwestern for a number of years, but really couldn't get the New York side of the business up and rolling. So I actually close the New York office, Matt. And I had a bunch of people that were working for me. I had to get each one of them jobs, including the secretaries. Um, but I closed down that office really not knowing what was next. That was 2002 or so. But as these funny things would happen, Trammell Crow uh, came calling. Uh, this was the not the, uh, not the development company, but the public service company. Uh, they were looking to uh, establish uh, regional leadership in capital markets and also wanted to see if uh, there was the opportunity to create a more 
um, organized national sale leaseback practice. So yet again, another challenge, completely different, big company, public company. Um, and that to me was probably the, the change, the brokerage change where I really started to get out in front of very large deals, the, you know, three, four, five, six, eight hundred million dollar deals where I was the person. And, you know, that to me probably was the last check the box of you can do this. You can drive very large capital markets deals as the lead person. Um, and Trammell Crow was a wonderful experience. Um, m- made some lasting friendships, uh, both on the client and the colleague side. But just like the AEW Copley situation, lo and behold, in the fall of 2000, lose my track of thought, 2006, CB merges with Trammell Crow. So now I have the opportunity, do I stay at Trammell Crow uh, and become a broker at CB, which would have been fine, great professional super company. But I had this other inkling, much like when I left Copley, I really came to New York to work in investment banking. And I had sort of worked in it, but I never really worked for an investment bank. So uh, I was talking to a recruiter, uh, one of your competitors, a friend, and I had been considering taking a number of Trammell Crow Capital Markets brokers and starting a boutique. So I started interviewing this recruiter about how I saw the industry, how I saw culture, how I thought organizations should come together to best serve clients. And I didn't realize, Matt, he was interviewing me for the co-head of global real estate at Julian Loki. So I had no idea I was being underwritten while I was underwriting him. <laughs> so Always. It's always both. Right. So who knew? But anyways, punchlines, Houlihan Loki was truly an investment bank. I had the opportunity to not only work on uh, conventional real estate uh, brokerage deals, but got a chance to be exposed on very large restructuring deals, uh, board of directors presentations, fairness opinions. And that really was, yet again, another completely new dimension within real estate, but in an envelope that I had never experienced. And um the Houlihan Loki experience was was tremendous for a variety of reasons because um, it really gave me a chance to see what the sides of the business that didn't involve simply brokerage um, involved and and what what it took to be good there. So um, yeah, so that was fabulous. Mm-hmm. And so then I think what what took you to Monday Properties and Cabot? So you know, as as luck would have it. Not dissimilar to how those high net worth individuals at the, that created the Tallard Group saw me in action and wanted me to be a partner with them. Um, one of my clients, uh, Anthony Westreich, a wonderful, wonderful young fellow, great professional and owner of Monday Properties, I had been advising him uh, on capital raising opportunities. And he said, would you ever consider moving back onto the principal side of the business as a partner in our firm? And... Um, you know, we talked about it and I really had sort of done all that I could do at Houlihan and um, the team was in good shape and it got to be, it, it seemed like it was getting a little flat. So uh, I started in conversations with Anthony. They really had a, a desire to grow. I didn't really know how to do it, but knew that they wanted to. I think we were, I think we had about five or six million feet between New York City and Washington at the time, DC and Roslyn, Virginia. So. Um, Anthony made me a wonderful and, and gracious offer. So I came on uh, two Monday properties as a partner, uh, left Houlihan, um, still in you know in very good terms, wonderful relationship with a lot of the senior bankers back there. And I moved back onto the principal side because I saw a great private company that didn't know how it wanted to grow. Um, 
but it wanted to grow. And I had the ability to be an agent of change yet again in a family office, which is a continues to be a theme as you probably have gathered through my career from my my grandfather's grocery store to, to them. <laughs> and what year is this, John? Uh, that would have been, let's think, uh, 2011. That's right. 2011, beginning of uh, right around the end of 11. That's right. So uh, tell us about being at Monday Properties and then starting Cabot. With Monday, with Monday, we had used the conventional operating partner model where we went out and used um, third party or, or I guess, you know, limited partners like people like Invesco and Goldman Sachs and Lehman and the rest. And I had looked at Monday as a potential growth engine beyond the standard operating partner model. I wasn't sure quite what I meant by that until I sort of got under the hood. And then I realized we had a great operating model. We had established really solid vertically integrated reporting asset management. Um, and there might be an opportunity for us to take that and scale it. And the reason that I thought we could scale it was I had met through my uh, Trammell Crow days and in my Houlihan days, a variety of really interesting operators who didn't have full vertical integration, nor did they have sophistication to report an asset management for, and asset manage for institutions. And I thought, could we potentially take our brand and could we almost in a private equity model expand and become a co-general partner with a variety of small cap entrepreneurs across the United States. So really the underpinnings of what Cabot became Matt really started, you know, in the research and development lab of Monday Properties. So I traveled all over the United States and I tried to determine was the thesis accurate. And one of the things that I did, and this is where JLL comes in in part, was I retained JLL's research team to help me benchmark creating the analogs between secondary and tertiary markets and gateway markets and what were the what were the determinants of how we viewed a gateway market mm -hmm. and were those determinants present in secondary and tertiary markets. So imagine in 2012 finding places like Nashville, Portland, Denver, Seattle to a lesser extent that now have become the darlings of the new gateways mm -hmm. and determining that we could make small investments in private companies on a joint venture basis and get access to gateway characteristics across a whole portfolio of different markets on a much greater risk-adjusted basis than going into New York or Boston, Boston or Washington, D.C. or San Francisco, as an example. Mm -hmm. So we created um, this idea, um, and I decided this was absolutely an idea that could work. Um, and the challenge at the time was that Monday was going through quite a bit of transition. Anthony loved the idea, but really didn't have the ability to focus on it because he had to focus on his business. So we um, parted very amicably. I'm still a partner in some of the deals. Mm -hmm. And we I moved on to try to see if this vision that I had could actually become a business. So left Monday Properties and really took a year off, Matt. And people were saying, hey, where are you? You know, Come back into ULI. And I said, no, I've got a plan. I don't know if this is going to work or not, but I've got an idea. And I think this actually might be something special. And yet again, as it would happen, I was sitting with a, a family office I've known for over 20 years, um, wealthy, uh, lovely Greek family in New York City. And I told them of my dream 
and they said, all of our property that we own is in New York City. We would love to back you. Mm. So Cabot started um, at the beginning of 2014. Um, and we've been about the business of creating really something analogous to what Mark uh, Walsh and Brett Bosung have at Silver Peak, mm-hmm. uh, a co-general partner platform, making investments in different parts of the country. Um, and I did it, you know, out of a little townhouse on 23rd Street with, you know, one and a half employees. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, went about the business of, of being, you know, being an entrepreneur again um, with a lot more uh, experience than I had at Tallard um, and probably, you know, a bit more of a business plan than I, than I had then, too. Right. And and being an entrepreneur is a tough damn thing to do, especially in these days when having an institution really matters. It really does. And I think, you know, we, we were successful in making investments in Chicago and St. Paul and Brooklyn and uh, with the backing of a large hedge fund, almost actually bought a very large service company. But the thing I didn't underwrite appropriately, Matt, and it sort of leads you more towards the JLL experience. I didn't understand how much of a team athlete I was. I didn't realize how much energy and excitement I got from collaborating with peers. Um, it's a team sport. And I, I guess I never realized that no matter how exciting being an entrepreneur is, um, you know, even if you are extremely successful, it's a very lonely voyage. And I can tell you that that was the part of the business plan that I completely misunderwrote, which was me. Yeah, you wouldn't, it actually wouldn't necessarily occur to you is do you like working alone or do you like working with a group and in a team? And, and where are your, and also to ascertain, develop that your skills are equally on the leadership side as they are on the pure structuring entrepreneurial and real estate side. Yeah, and I think that, that reference that I made earlier to really aggressively self-assessing, when I was making the determination whether I could, you know, could I really hang in there with Cabot to get it to, um, you know, that next level beyond the family office and the non-discretionary sidecar from the hedge fund realm, you know, is that what I really wanted? Is that what I wanted to do? Is that how I wanted to spend the next decade of my career? And it was very painful, Matt. And I remember sitting down with the family office who are still like, my, they are my family. And I said, I don't think this is what I should be doing. And they were so gracious. Um, they said, you know, we backed you and the business plan was second. Um, we want you to be happy. We know your wife, Patty. We know your children. What can we do to make you happy? Are the, the deals you've put us in are going to be successful. That's great. That's math. But uh, Yanyi, which is John in Greek, they said, Yanyi, we want you to be happy. So that that voyage, Matt, was okay. What do you do next? What where am I supposed to go? What's what of all these things that I've learned, all these you know these crazy twists and turns I've taken in my career? Where am I supposed to take this life experience? Who am I supposed to go to to do the most good? To you know be financially successful, but to try to really make a difference in people's lives, which has really been sort of something I've, I've been focused on my whole career, um, which sometimes would make you chuckle that you end up in real estate, right? That's not necessarily where everybody goes with that type of a priority. Um, but that was sort of how the, you know, the accident and the blessing of JLL came to pass. I was talking to some people, um, uh, about different uh, opportunities on the principal side and the advisory side. Um, I had dear friends at, at, uh, at CB and HFF, and I chatted at length. Um, there wasn't anything, there wasn't a natural fit there. Um, and shockingly, I uh, ended up speaking to a dear friend of mine who was at the time a senior 
leader here at the firm. And he said, would you ever think about joining us? And I, what I didn't mention to you was in the fall um, of 2015, uh, that same recruiter who had presented Houlihan Loki to me by accident said, we have a mandate with JLL for president of capital markets for the Americas. Would you be interested? And I was still pressing on with Cabot Street. And I said, I wouldn't do it, A, because I don't know why you'd want me. And two, um, I have a very keen focus to try to see this through at least to the end of the year and to the first quarter of next year. So that fellow from, from JLL, that senior uh, friend of mine, he said, the opportunity is still available. We've not been able to find the right fit. Would you at least meet some of the senior leaders and talk to a few of the board members just to hear the whole story? And I said, of course I would. And Matt, it's, uh, I don't know whether it's divine intervention, but what they needed, what I wanted to do, where the firm was, uh, where the capital markets platform was, it was created for me. I, I really truly do not believe it now that I'm sitting here coming on my third year that it happened. I really thank God for it because it's been remarkable. So it, it's interesting uh, being being a recruiter. I'll, I'll make some observations to the points that you're making. You know, first of all, it's not a linear path that necessarily gets you to these jobs or gets the job filled, and it's not the path necessarily of the particularly the kind of role that you have because we've filled some of them. And you, the obvious thing is go find someone who's doing it for a smaller firm, but. You actually were in training to do this from every side of the business between investment banking, brokerage, the principal side and banking. You were and, and being an entrepreneur and knowing what clients needed, you were way in training and way ready for this. Yes, you know, and, and I didn't. Uh, as it's typically the case, you have no idea. Um, and it was funny, my partner, Jay Coster, who was the, uh, he, he runs all investor services for the Americas, including capital markets. We had never met. Um, maybe we had met in passing at a, at a JLL event a couple of years ago. And we met. We were finishing each other's sentences at breakfast. Next thing I know, uh, I'm on a flight to Dallas to meet John uh, Gates, who's our uh, CEO of Markets for the Americas. And next thing I know, I'm on the phone with Greg O'Brien, who's the CEO for the Americas, and I'm uh, and I'm we're finishing each other's sentences. And uh, you don't realize that all those different twists and turns, and sometimes you think inefficiencies or mistakes that you've made in your career, they really were all leading up to this. So I, it's funny, I've, and we'll, we'll talk about this, but I, I sat with clients from, you know, from Blackstone to Starwood to Brookfield to THRE to JP Morgan, et cetera. And I've had senior peers say, is the job hard? And I said, you know, the job can be demanding at times, but the job isn't hard because all the things that I've done in my career and in my life, I'm simply just now employing them. Uh, it isn't a case of, you know, needing to really learn something new, although I am learning. I feel like I'm learning every day. Yeah. And, and so summarize, if you have three sentences, what, what is your job? What do you, what do, you do there? <laughs> well, um, in my simplest form, I oversee all sale and financing activities for the Capital Markets Division of JLL for the Americas. Um, that also includes uh, all of our activities around investment banking and the like. So it's if 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 a uh, if an owner uh, of real estate anywhere in the Americas is looking to execute a transaction on their ownership interest, uh, I'm hoping that I'm one of the few calls, if not the only call, that they make to help them. 
Got it. And and how much of your time and or the business that you oversee winds up being U.S. versus the other parts of the Americas? What I'm doing now, in addition to spending most of my time in the U.S. Um, and some in Canada, very little in Latin America because how we're structured, we've got some industrial work there and uh, some corporate some corporate services work in Latin America. I sit on our global capital markets board. Um, so now my purview really has become global. I had had some global experience at Houlihan uh, and a little bit, as I said earlier, at Transwestern in Mexico. But now my dashboard is across the world and that it is, you know, especially, you know, I won't say late in your career, but later in your career as I am. Um, what a fascinating window on the world I have now that I hadn't had before traveling across Asia and the Middle East. And um, it's been fascinating. So the the purview I have now, uh, while the mandate is domestic in nature, uh, my interaction with investors all over the world, either directly or through my partners on the board, um, really make it a global, uh, you know, a global uh, job. Mm-hmm. I think if you don't think of the U.S. from the standpoint of globally, you're missing what's happening in the U.S. Oh, certainly, certainly. And, you know, with our with our footprint and, and how we bring liquidity to bear in practically any instance um, cross-border, um, you definitely have to think in terms of liquidity on a global scale. To If you truncate your sort of sphere of awareness based on the region within, within which you work, um, you know, you're a partial practitioner of the industry. You just, it's, you're just not doing what you need to do for your clients. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so I have a bunch of different questions about what you do, how you do it, and how it matters. I, we have to preface it with, I can't not think of JLL in the context of the three big firms. Maybe there's four or five, so I'm going to be offensive to number four or number five. But within the... Um, ecosystem of CBRE, JLL, Cushman and Wakefield, and and maybe some others. In part, I want to understand how you position JLL, but I, but I don't want an advertisement about that. It's more how do you position yourself among a group of three who are relatively similar? Just what's it mean to be in that world? Sure. Well, it's you know the first thing is we when I say we whether it's CB or whether it's Cushman, whether it's the, you know, the powerful boutiques like, like HFF or Eastill, mm-hmm. I think we all have a role in the industry. There are various things that we all do really well. And maybe there's things that some of us do better than others. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the competitive set, as I see it on the capital market side, um, really those are the groups that we intersect with the most. There are others that, that come in and out. Um, when you look at our multifamily, uh, business. There are folks like Walker and Dunlap and others that get involved from the agency side. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I guess the way I would look at it, Matt, and it's not, and I certainly not framed as a commercial. Um, I do know that in speaking to our largest clients, with very little exception, what they claim to be the differentiator is that obviously we've got the technical proficiency to do the work. That's 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 a gating issue. You have to mm-hmm. have that condition mm-hmm. precedent. Mm-hmm. But we are very uniquely connected globally, both in terms of our culture, in terms of some fascinating technology that we have, which wires us, all 2,000 plus of us around the world through one system, which is unlike any system that anybody else has. Um, We invested very significantly to make that a reality. And the clients know that they're going to get a outstanding technical expertise. But as it relates to 
our communication around the country and around the world. Um, it's something that we pride ourselves on. And then, and some of the other groups, um, I think do a very good job at it more probably the boutiques than the bigger firms, mm-hmm. um, either because of culture or, you know, people being commissioned within their certain markets or whatever. But it is something we focus maniacally on. And I can tell you how we were, say, three years ago versus how we are today. Clients have told me, you know, you are absolutely a different company than you were in 2015. Um, and that's very gratifying to hear. You just said clients say to you, you're absolutely a different company than you were in 2015. Is that the maniacal focus on collaboration or communication? Yes. What, what is it? And absolutely. how do you get there? Because one. One of the challenges that any brokerage organization, especially a national brokerage organization has, is, you know, you have um, people who are independent within a city or they're independent within a practice. And obviously, they're focused on whatever it takes to make them the most successful within their very narrow purview. And, you know, we built the Capital Markets Group, which is barely, it's not even 10 years old, Matt, by acquiring, hiring professionals around the United States who weren't really a part of a shared culture, a shared financial fiber. So, you know, if you think about the alignment of interest, they were aligned around a summary of very profitable, successful people to a top line revenue. But if you looked below that, that certainly wasn't what you'd call, you know, a partnership. And that's very natural of national brokerage companies. I think the, the boutiques do a better job of it. Shared commissions, um, shared culture, much fewer people. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a great challenge for us as we grew. But now that we're at the, at scale, um, in addition to the fact that we're going to be very aggressive in growing our multifamily business, um, we're at the point now, these last couple of years, where it was about how do we bring people together around a common vision, a common brand, a mm-hmm. common approach to clients, a common approach to the business, um, and do it in a way where people say, yes, I am still focused on my day-to-day remuneration. That's life. We're a commissioned organization. But there is something more to it. And I'm willing to work with others. I'm willing to defer to somebody involving a client if they're closer. Um, and it was it's a lot of work it's a lot of work Matt but it's it's been incredibly fulfilling and clients are noticing and that's when you know it's happening when you when the CIO or the CEO of a company calls you and says I've got to tell you um, how so and so and so and so came together on that and the way that you and she and he all knew what was happening um, boy you guys really are figuring this out and have figured this out and you know, again, there's always work to be done. We're we're vastly far from perfect, but we've definitely made enormous we've made enormous strides in the last, I'd say, you know, twenty four to thirty months. Yeah, it's fascinating because what you're discussing is the balance between the platform and the individuals, and there will right. always be a balance. The individuals won't disappear because you're also relying on very highly compensated, stellar performers. But they can't run away with it. They have to give give up something. It's not the right word either. But there's this balance, right? There's a balance and attention at the same time. Yeah, and I think you know it's it's funny. Uh, uh, my partner Jay, who was with the Staubach company for many many years, had an opportunity, uh, r- r- really a, a, the the blessing of having Roger Staubach as one of his mentors. And Staubach said something that I it really resonated with me. He said, you know, all those years, all those one games, all those playoffs, those Super Bowls that we won. It wasn't as if everybody in the locker room was easy to get along with. 
my job as a leader was to find a way to unify very disparate, strong personalities around a common mission. And if that isn't what we do, then, you know, I'm not sure what I'm saying. Absolutely true. It's interesting. I tell, I, I like horror stories as well as I like the perfect story, right? And so I was once doing a search for a company and we were talking to different brokers and I was trying to understand the difference in culture between companies. And one of my, uh, a principal firm called and said, God, here's a horror story. So the horror story was they selected, I don't know which brokerage firm to do the business. I think in the, the case of this horror story, a different broker from that firm wound up calling my buddy and yelling at him and saying, how could you hire Jimbo? You should have hired me to do this deal. How could you do that to <laughs> me? And it was the same sure. platform. It wasn't even a different company that lost the business. It was the wrong guy. And yes, you yes. have to deal with that kind of stuff every day. You do. It's And, and, and it's, um, it, it's definitely, um, it is a common situation in the industry. I remember as a, when I was on the principal side of my various points and I dealt with either leasing brokers or capital markets brokers, you would get those calls. And, and it's very interesting. I, I had this discussion with a client once. He said, you know, sometimes we make decisions, we think for all the right reasons. Sometimes they're difficult decisions, which they may not add up to what you as the, as the investment uh, advisor want to be the outcome. But why do people think that if they shout at me or they insult me, that the outcome the next time isn't going to be assured and it's not going to be in their bet for their benefit. And I said, I don't know. I just, um, I think you have to play the long game. I, I, I know, and I'm sure you feel this way too. Uh, you know, you're walking around the halls of ULI. Um, usually the fall meeting is the one more attended, uh, and you're overwhelmed by the amount of people that you say hello to. And I think that is to me, one of the examples of what the body of your work represents. If you can thankfully not have to cross the road to avoid people um, after decades, you're probably doing something right. And some of the competitors, you know, they don't feel that way. It's a very binary type of thing, but I don't think anything in life is binary, Matt, and neither is business. No, it isn't. And uh, I say this to everybody. It is always a long game, uh, really, really important way to look at the world. And just sticking with the subject just a little bit longer, part of your job is to manage, cultivate some amazingly successful, super highly compensated professionals. How do you how do you how do you work with those people most successfully at the same time that you're working with the rest of the folks and mentoring them to become those other guys or gals? Yeah, it's uh, I guess the way I would describe it is you have to start by being as selfless as you possibly can. Um, it really isn't about you. It's about them. Um, and some of them are wired so that that's an understanding that they're comfortable with. <laughs> So you do have to focus on selflessness. You have to be patient. Um, you try to simplify things. You know, we're a very big global company. Sometimes it can, we can be frustrating to some of our producers. Um, so I try to simplify things wherever I can. And I listen, Matt, I'm not successful 100% of the time. But I think the only thing you can do with anybody, whether it's the, the producer who is the preeminent earner or somebody who's you know, having difficulty in the business and maybe it's not the right place for them is you just try to be as forthright as you can. And sometimes that's very difficult. People sometimes do not like truth. 
um, cause truth can be hard to digest sometimes. And, um, I think I just try to be consistent. Again, I try to be selfless. Um, you know, part of the reason why this job was so attractive to me was, I mean, you know, the 700 people in my group with a, with a handful of other folks, we oversee over 2000 of them globally. If you didn't want to help people, um, and try to make what they do easier and help them make more money and help them be happier, whatever, you're definitely in the wrong gig. I mean, you're definitely in the wrong gig. It's interesting. Uh, t- today, your podcast came out, uh, first one sponsored by you guys with Ron Terwilliger. And prior to my interview with Ron, I was talking to one of his people from years ago, and he said he was a servant leader. That was the, that was the headline. He was mm. there to we make us successful. Yes. Remember the old Churchill, um, one of the many, I happen to love Churchill, but he, he said something to the effect of, um, we make a living by what we get, but we create a life by what we give. And I don't mean to be hokey, but it really is what it's all about. I mean, it's, I can tell you when uh, we have our national award ceremonies and I get up on stage and talk to people and then I'm you know, speaking to them after we have, we have our academy uh, event, which came from the Starback companies. We'll have, you know, say a thousand, twelve hundred of our real stars. And, um, you know, many of them, there may be some folks I actually, I may not remember the name of or, or whatever, but the way that they engage with you and how excited they are that they know you're committed to them, Matt, um, I don't, I don't really know how you could put a dollar amount on that. That's just that, that to me is you found a place where you are making a difference and very few people get a chance to do that. Um, you know, in, 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 in this kind of an organization. So again, you know, I, again, I don't want to sound hokey, but, uh, it's, it's a blessing to be able to help this many people. It really is. It, it's interesting. People think it's hokey if you're helping people who are enormously compensated. But you're helping people, and people are making a difference, and they're moving the needle both in their business and for others, and not hokey. Uh, a couple of other questions, because we're going to have to wrap up soon. One is, if you looked at the skill set, what creates success in this business today and look back 15, 20 years ago? There's probably a caricature for 15, 20 years ago about what the most successful broker might look and feel like and, and, and the skills they need to bring to the table and the balance of those skills. What, what would that be today? Some of it, some of it is the same, and some of it, by virtue of what it means when you say the words, is different. So, as an example, I think you still have to be incredibly hardworking. Your work ethic needs to be almost without peer. You need to be very, very competitive, um, and that doesn't necessarily mean you know elbowing people out of the way to get to the front of the line. But you do have to have an enormous level of drive. Um, and a ferocity to do the job, do it well, do it completely. But I think the thing that's different now, and this is probably to me when I focus on our professionals who I think have the opportunity to grow, um, even if they're <laughs> high earners, is intellectual curiosity. Mm-hmm. Um, I think back in the day, if you will, a broker who sold industrial buildings or office buildings in you know a certain city you really just had to be good at that. And the concept of what else could be going on with the client, whether it involved how they were financing their acquisitions, where they were in the life cycle of their business, how you might consider how they position themselves to be more successful vis-a-vis their competitive set. Mm -hmm. Those were sort of ancillary curiosities and only Mm -hmm. a rare group of professionals in the brokerage world thought that way. 
Um, you know, you think about um, the things that Marianne Ty mentioned to you about how she navigates her relationships with her clients. You know, she's amongst the best in the United States and probably in the world at that. You have to be open to asking more than the obvious linear questions. Um, one of the things that I always tell our folks here, never go to a meeting alone if you could possibly help it. Try to bring one or two people who come from different uh, parts of our business or different parts of our company. You'd be stunned at the dimensions that the conversation will take and the opportunity set that you'll create as a, as a um, as an outcome of that. So I'd, I'd say a lot is the same, Matt, but mm-hmm. I would say um, bandwidth, intellectual curiosity, moving outside of the sphere of the product or the service that you deliver. Um, that, I, to me, that's, that's probably a primary indicator of the upside you'll have in the business. That's a wonderful way to look at it. Uh, and it's interesting. We talk about intellectual curiosity in my firm and with my clients all the time. And it's huge. It makes all the difference, and especially in, in my business, it which could be really straightforward, right? I'm brokering a human being. No, let me think deeper about that. And it's two or three levels beyond what the, the, the obvious is all the time. Oh, yeah. You know, we were laughing about that Richard Bowles, what color is your parachute visual earlier. And I mentioned to um, in some of the groups that I give presentations to within our organization, imagine for a moment that you're at a cocktail party with someone. You typically don't begin and end the conversation with one or two questions. You probe, you move to different parts of their history, their storyline. It's things as simple as, where are you from? Tell me about your background. How did, how did it come to pass that you formed this firm? What have been your challenges? What frustrates you? What are your fears? You'd be stunned at what highly intelligent, successful people will share with you because you're showing curiosity for their business. You're showing curiosity for them as people. Um, and it just puts the discussion in a different plane. Now, there are some clients, some folks that probably don't want to share those kind of details, but you'd be remiss if you didn't try. Absolutely true. Well, it's what creates relationships. It's a relationship business. So let, let's segue to a, a couple of other points. Um, this is not the most diverse industry historically. I think it's becoming so. And I know that's a big part of your leadership at JLL. So talk about Talk about how that the industry is changing from a diversity standpoint, gender, background, the rest of it. Sure. Well, it's, you know, it's, we were talking about getting young people excited to come into our business earlier in the conversation. And one of the things that we've seen with some of our institutional clients, they're doing a really good job of bringing different types of people to bear. Because if you think about it, that diversity creates creativity, there's diverse views, life experiences are different, and probably the most important thing other than that, it will begin to mirror our clients because our clients have become much more diverse, Matt. And, you know, I've been in meetings where I look at our side of the table and it's mostly, you know, guys like me who are, you know, you know, middle-aged and, you know, they're guys, right? And that's not where the business is going. So we're really spending time uh, on the capital market side, trying to change that. We've got some outstanding female professionals as leaders who have created some wonderful events, bringing their peers from our client base to bear. They've, we've gotten wonderful feedback on that. We're going to start really escalating uh, our outreach to universities and graduate schools, taking our top female execs and showing their younger peers 
This is a path to an exciting industry. This is what I've done. Here's how I've managed my challenges to making it real. Um, and also bringing some of our younger up and coming stars back to their alma maters or other schools where they are much more like a peer with the young people that are in those schools. And we're going to begin not only with younger folks. We'll try to, we'll, we'll try to work it through in the, in the sort of middle of the career path, which is a little bit more challenging. But, you know, the, the folks at Blackstone, um, have done a wonderful job of I, identifying it as a challenge and an opportunity, not dissimilar to how they look at investments and being, being very proactive in the way they address it. And we're trying to take some guidance from great firms and clients like them, um, you know, as we go on our journey to try to make JLL a much more diverse place than it is today. We do a great job, Matt, as an organization. Capital markets has proven a little bit more of a challenge. Um, I think we do a great job in leasing, property management, executive roles within the firm. Um, but my job and Jay Coster's job and other, other leaders across the, the globe in capital markets, um, you know, we're going to try to up our game a little bit. And, uh, and I'm optimistic and, you know, it's one of the things I'm excited about. It's a, it's a great mission. And, and sometimes things aren't. Don't happen overnight. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So um, JLL has a $100 million venture capital fund called Spark, which invests in real estate technology companies. Talk a little bit about that and its impact in the business. Well, we we look at technology as a foregone conclusion that our industry will be dominated by it, and it's already moving in that direction. Our, our global CEO, Christian Albrook, always talks about the fact that, you know, as we move through our voyage, you know, we'll become a technology company that specializes in real estate. Um, even if we become a real estate company purely focused on specializing in technology, we get to the same place in my mind. And Spark is a classic example of we looked at the property technology sector. And we realized that having people who are typical um, IT people or technology people from the, corp the classic corporate side of the world are probably not going to be, they could be, but they may not be the people most attuned to identifying emerging technologies, entrepreneurs who are truly game-changing in their space, because they aren't necessarily from that world. So we hired two wonderful um, serial venture capital prop tech entrepreneurs, um, created a fund around them, uh, the Spark Fund. And these are guys that were early investors in things like Uber, Groupon, and the rest. They've spent the last 20 years, Matt, identifying game-changing entrepreneurs and technologies across all industries. So... We're early on in the voyage. We've made a few, we've made a few investments. Um, I actually, with some of the other board members, had an opportunity to have some of the potential companies present to us. So it was sort of fun to play venture capitalist um, for a day. But we think that, A, it's a foregone conclusion that technology will dominate our business. We see opportunities to use technology and new technologies to change um, the way a tenant experiences their space going vastly beyond, you know, the classic outsourcing to WeWork and the like. So we're looking at things involving building systems that change energy utilization, um, forensically identifying how space is used um, by companies, um, 
things involving the way assets are underwritten, um, the way information is shared doing it during the acquisition process, how buildings are built. We're, we're we are navigating all of that, and uh, it'll be fascinating to see where it comes. But I do know that I feel very strongly as an executive of the firm, we are doing what we need to do to be out in front of it, so that. Um, you know, to the extent that there are, is creative destruction, you know, we're hopefully not the recipient of that destruction. It, it's interesting. Um, you just described virtually every facet of the real estate business being touched by technology. Let's say you make five or 10 bets, but there's, you know, hundreds of places it happens. Making those bets will both hedge you in terms of having opportunity there, but also looking at all those companies will get you the information you need to be adjusting whether or not you invest in the specific businesses. It attunes yeah, you to the And it's to already happening in that regard. You're right. And you know, some of it will be uh, a product or a tool that has a task uh, success attached to it. And some of it, you know, like all of these things, not just similar to the career stories we've told one another, um, will lead you down a path that you perhaps had no idea you were going down until you said, oh, this seems interesting. Let's invest in that. And then, you know, the if then statement could be infinite. Absolutely true. So my last question always, um, yeah. you're giving advice <laughs> to a young person. They're thinking of entering a career in real estate. Um, why should they do it and how might they want to navigate? What would your advice be? Well, I, I guess, you know, as we said earlier, r- real estate really at this point has become an industry where almost any person with varying levels of talent can find a place to be fulfilled financially and professionally. There's no doubt about it. And it's, if you're, if you have technical proficiency, if you have, um, you're great at building relationships, if you're a problem solver, if you're interested in a different product type or a different part of the country, there's something for everybody. So I think to me, you have the ability to build a career that's only limited by your own imagination and work ethic. And then when I give guidance to people, I really do start, Matt, with, and I come back to, you know, that, that anxiety when I sat in those meetings with those Copley people, not feeling like I deserve to be in the room. The only thing that you absolutely know you can control is outwork everybody around you. I always start with that. If you have got the ferocity to outwork anybody else, your success is almost insured. And then after that, you know, I would say network aggressively and continue to network throughout your career. Try to see if you can align yourself with a mentor or mentors. Um, they don't even necessarily have to be in the business, although that would help. Um, have people guide you through what their journey has been. You can listen to some of it. You can avoid some of their mistakes. Um, and then as it relates to identifying a, a firm or an organization, first of all, start somewhere because you can always move. The, the person that looks for the perfect opportunity usually ends up being the person that isn't employed. And try to find a place where, based on what you can tell, there's a path to learning. And if you can outwork everybody, network, find a mentor, and end up in an organization where you think there's a path to learning, you are well on your way to being a success in a variety of ways that go beyond what your W-2 says. Absolutely true. And that's what a career is all about, right? It's half, it's half Absolutely. W-2 and it's half you found meaning and relationships and created a <laughs> Amen. life. Amen to that. You Amen got to it. that. Hey, John, thank you. This has uh, been a great conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Matt. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. It's always great to chat with you. This episode of Leading Voices in Real Estate has been brought to you by JLL. The firm's in-depth local market and global investor knowledge delivers the best-in-class solutions for clients. Whether a sale, financing, repositioning, advisory, or recapitalization execution, 
Are you interested in how to make your ambition a reality? Learn more at jll.com voices. That's jll.com voices.